I think being a professional who's working remotely by nature is more entrepreneurial. You've gone out on on an edge, you're doing something different. Even today, I mean, certainly a few years ago, but even today, it's still an, evol- an emerging and evolving space. It's not the normal. None of us have, um, you know, 20 years of working remotely under our belt at this point. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Koshovsky, and welcome to another episode of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Sarah Hawley, the founder and CEO of Growmotely, which connects culture-first companies and professionals from all over the world to do great things. Sarah is also the author of Conscious Leadership, And during this episode, we discuss how remote work is redefining the concept of work for humanity, how to stand out when looking for a remote job, and what it means to be a conscious company. But before we dive into the interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider, where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you will all also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, all one word. And you can also read some example newsletters there so you know what you're signing up for. Also, I'd like to thank SafetyWing for sponsoring the show. Their travel and medical insurance is specifically designed for digital nomads and remote companies. I will tell you a bit more about the awesome things they're creating for you later in the episode. As always, if you haven't subscribed or left a review already, please consider doing so now. Just go ahead and hit that subscribe button or follow button on your podcasting app and you will never miss any new episodes and you'll help us climb the the charts and attract new listeners. I've also made it really easy for you to leave a review. You can either do so straight in your app right now or head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and leave your review there when you get to your computer. Finally, I'd like to invite you to join our TRL listener Slack channel, which you can find at thatremotelife.com forward slash Slack. This is something new that I'm launching as a way to connect with listeners of the show like you. And I'm doing this for a few reasons. Number one, I'd love to learn more about the types of content you'd like to hear more from on this podcast, but also I would love to add more value to you. In our Slack channel, you'll be able to have direct contact with me, meet other listeners of this show passionate about the future of work, the digital nomad lifestyle, and entrepreneurship, and we'll be putting together events and Q&As with some of our biggest podcast guests to dive in even deeper with them. Access to the Slack channel is completely free, and again, that link is thatremotelife.com forward slash Slack. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Sarah Hawley. All right, Sarah, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. I am excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So you are the CEO and founder of Growmotely, uh, which helps uh, bring companies and professionals together across the world to do great things. That's what your tagline says on, on the website. And I'm very excited to talk to you about all things remote work and how you got started with Growmotely. But I kind of want to start at a you know, I want to start at a bit of an odd place and that's failure. Okay. Because, um, I want to ask you how you define failure, because when I was doing research for this interview, uh, I read that you've done a whole bunch of different things. You've had some exits from previous companies. You've had some companies that haven't necessarily worked out. You've acquired some companies as well, but you said in, in one of the interviews that I was reading with you that you've really only had like one failure, even though there's been a lot of things that haven't worked out. And I recently did uh, a panel with a bunch of college students where they were asking me about remote work and entrepreneurship and whatnot. And I got asked about failure. And I kind of said that I don't, even though there's been a lot of things that haven't worked out, it I haven't really felt like it was a failure because it usually morphed into something else that worked out. So I had never really thought about it as a failure. So I'm curious, uh, part selfishly, how do you define failure and what sets apart something that you think of as a failure versus something that just didn't work out? 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that's interesting in terms of just like the use of the word and, you know, when we use it in the context of entrepreneurship and what does it really mean and and all that. So it's a good question. Um, And people have probably heard it before, but I think it's not, it is just an opportunity to learn and grow and evolve into what's next. Um, I've, I think I've, I've started about nine companies and there's one that I would say, like from the entrepreneurship perspective, we kind of would class as a failure, which was an online bookkeeping company called We Love Numbers. And we basically got to a point we had raised some capital. It was uh, my, and my business partner raised the capital, not me. So I wasn't as involved in the fundraising process. This Grimotely is actually the first company that I've personally fundraised for. But we had a couple of other companies at the time and my business partner was going through some pretty significant burnout. Um, and between us, we just, it was so crazy because it was like right when the last check came in, to close the round that he was just completely exhausted. And I don't want to speak to his experience too much, but we kind of sat down together and there were some challenges in the company that we knew were going to take a lot of energy to resolve. And even though we had the capital there, we sat with ourselves in terms of our integrity, where we were at with our energy level and the challenges that we had. And it didn't feel like the right thing to do to, spend other people's money at that time, given the situation. And so we made the decision to essentially fail the company. So what we did was send all of the investor money back and explain the situation to them. And then we sold what we had built. Um, So, you know, it was, it was a, a closing of the company. There was some exit sale type thing involved, but I wouldn't call it like a successful exit. It wasn't what we were aiming to do when we started the company. So other things, there's a couple of other companies that I've started that didn't quite go where I wanted them to. And I ended up like rolling them into another company or taking on that product into another company or something like that. Um, But I think, so, so one thing I learned about that was generally speaking, like failure is still a decision. You still make a decision at a point in time that like, okay, I don't want to keep going with this because of X, Y, Z. And so I'm going to make a decision. And I think that's interesting for people to know that it doesn't really like happen to you as much as you just get to a point where you might decide that this is not the best course of action moving forward. So is it really a failure or is it just a decision to do the, the thing that's the right thing for you at that time. Um, and obviously you can analyze like the different aspects of why things were the way they were and why it was hard. And that's where the learning and the growth comes from. And I think to, to go further on that as an entrepreneur, it's like, it's very challenging. I mean, I feel like the job of an entrepreneur in a lot of ways is you're creating something and bringing something new to life in the world. And, more things are going to be hard and challenging at least at certain times than they are easy. Like it's, it's generally the job of an entrepreneur is this kind of problem solving and figuring out all the challenges. And as soon as you figure out one challenge, it's then time to get onto the next one. It's like that game where you have to bop those things down. Like you bop down one challenge and you're like, ah, and you, before you breathe, like another one pops up and you're like, all right, I got to tackle that one. That's how it feels sometimes. And obviously we go through periods where maybe it feels like there's more of that. And other times where it's like, okay, we're kind of coasting for a while. But I think generally speaking, you don't really coast for that long because there's a lot that is going into a company. You have all the, all of the dynamics of this team that's growing and, and thinking about that from like an interrelational perspective every time you add a team member, you're adding a whole new dynamic into mm-hmm. the cohesion that is there. So there's often challenges with that. And then you have your customers and, you know, everything that you're doing in a business, sales, marketing, financial management, operations. So there's always going to be challenges along the way. And there are going to be things that we do in a business that we end up saying, well, that's not working. So let's stop doing it and change direction. And, you know, is it a failure or is it just like, well, it didn't work. We're learning. We're 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 going on a journey, and and that's that thing's not working. But maybe this will. And I think it's an important part of entrepreneurship is to continue to 
analyze what's going on and feel into your intuition and, and evolve the things that are happening. So I think choosing this as a career is knowing that it's very different to a career path where you decide to become something in the world and maybe you go to university and get a degree or you just do on the job training or whatever and then you start to become really good at it and then day after day essentially you just keep doing the thing that you're really good at over and over again and you get better and better at it and you probably have leapfrogs in your career into different areas of responsibility and um, expanding and you go through these new growth periods but it's a lot more gentle I would say than the entrepreneur journey, which sometimes I'm like, oh my God, am I crazy <laughs> doing this to myself over and over again? Because it's, you know, it's a, there's a lot more problem solving, a lot more challenge and a lot more times where you find yourself like, shit, I have not been in this situation before. This is new. Every time you launch a new company, you know, from one day to the next, you're bigger than you were the day before you're growing you're, or, or you're different. Something's hopefully. Ha- yeah, hopefully, or something's happening. That's like not something you've experienced before. So it's, there's just a lot of learning. And I think every company is different. Um, there's all these different factors that are coming in. And while of course these things do play into a career, I think there's um, just a kind of higher velocity of that problem solving cycle that you're constantly going through as an entrepreneur. So I think it's important to know that it's very much a part of the journey. I just started uh, listening to Mark Manson's uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Mm-hmm. And he had this interesting like point in there where it's like, life is all about solving problems, right? Like there's no such thing as like a problem-free life. Yep. The, the kind of the goal is to find the problems that you like to solve. And I think that that's very important in entrepreneurship as well, where it's like your job as a business owner, the, the reason why your business exists is to solve a problem and you need to like the problems that you solve. But yeah. it is true that like being a business owner, it's like, okay, everyone exists to solve problems. But then when you're a business owner, it's like that to the nth degree a little yeah. bit. Right? It's like it's like even even on top of that a, a bit more. Because well, you're still um, doing all that problem solving in your life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, you kind of talk about how being an entrepreneur is different than than having a career. And I'm curious from your vantage point, obviously what Remotely does, it helps people find jobs with remote companies. Do you feel like employment uh, the job, quote unquote, is becoming more entrepreneurial now that, you know, we're seeing remote work. Like, I'm curious about because that's something that like I am starting to see a bit more of where the the job or the nine to five is becoming a bit more flexible. We're seeing a lot more freelancers. Obviously, you've seen this. Like, I'm sure you've seen this movement of people who have like two or three uh, full-time jobs because they're able to work remotely. Right. So from your vantage point, do you do you agree with that? Do you also see that? Yeah, I do. And I was kind of going to wrap a bit of a disclaimer around what I was saying or just kind of add to it. Like I I definitely don't mean to diminish, you know, going down the path of being someone who works for someone else versus being the person who is the entrepreneur, because I, I do agree with you. I think careers in general are becoming more entrepreneurial. I think being a professional who's working remotely by nature is more entrepreneurial. You've gone out on on an edge, you're doing something different. Even today, I mean, certainly a few years ago, but even today, it's still an an emerging and evolving space. It's not the normal. None of us have, um, you know, 20 years of working remotely under our belt at this point. Like most of us don't anyway. Most people at this point who are moving into the remote sector are doing it for the first time and have recently experiencing it. So there's a lot of learning that goes on. And when we work remotely, there are a lot more decisions that need to be made every day for ourselves that we don't have to make when we're working in an office. Mm. If you work in an office, you know, you get told what time to turn up. You probably get told where to sit in the building. You get told what time you can go and have your lunch break. You're probably almost told where you can have your lunch to a degree, like here's the restaurants or here's the kitchen or whatever. There's just like all these little things that you don't have to think about because they're decided for you, even like the leave policy or where you pay your taxes, all that kind of thing. When we work remotely and when I think of remote work, it's really anywhere work. You know, it's not the work from home in isolation that we experienced during the pandemic. It's it's this freedom and flexibility to work wherever you want to work. And often that means becoming an independent contractor, um, taking charge of your own financial situation, figuring out 
visas and how you're meant to pay taxes depending on where you're living, if you are more nomadic, uh, what hours in the day suit you best for work. Are you good working at home? Do you have a home space where it feels good or do you like to go to a co-working space or a cafe or a combination of all three or whatever it might be? There's just a hell of a lot more that goes into every day. But I also think with that, because of that, we're starting to see this more empowered nature of work where it really is a group of professionals coming together to build something, to bring something to life. And so there's a lot more entrepreneurial flair in kind of the average person's role, I think, these days. And it's beautiful because even though it's a challenging journey to learn all of that for ourselves and to take that full responsibility and be very sovereign and empowered, um, it's creating much more beautiful work dynamics over time. Yeah, and I think even in in terms of searching out and getting a job, right, and being the best applicant for an open position, you almost have to have, or I feel like the people who have the most leverage over getting the job they want almost are forced into this personal brand space where they have to develop some sort of credibility, some sort of brand online, because that way they're not just another resume on the desk. And so with that, you know, obviously you've seen a lot of people get hired. You've helped a lot of people get hired at companies. What are some of those things that you feel like if, if anyone's listening to this and is like, hey, I want to get a remote job. I'm very interested in this. What can they do to sort of become one of those few people that stand out from the crowd in terms of applications? Because yes, remote work comes with it a lot of opportunity because you can work for anyone, but also it creates a lot of, uh, um, a lot of competition, right? Because now anyone can apply for this job, not just the people in, in your area. So what are some tips that you have for people to really stand out uh, on job uh, for job applications and to become like the perfect fit for that? Yeah, I think having like very strong um, profile online, whether it's, you know, in Remotely, we have our own version of your profile where you set up all your past experience and things like that. But whether you're looking at Remotely or LinkedIn or whatever it might be, um, creating that strong profile where everything is there. People can see your history, see your strengths and taking the time to kind of when you're putting in your past experiences and the companies that you've worked for, like writing about the things that you achieved and what you did and what you were responsible for, initiatives that you put put into place. Um, I also think it's really, it's, it's a challenging one, right? But the spray and pray, I don't love, like trying to just become anything to get a job, I don't think is the way forward. I think it's more like really finding the companies that you want to work for and feeling like feeling into whether you're aligned with their vision, their purpose, their values, whether they feel like they're in alignment with yours and then putting your best foot forward to demonstrate in your application that you do have high alignment to what they do in the world and why they do it and how they do it. And I think that's what we see. I mean, Gromotely is all about culture first matching. And so really helping companies and teams find each other with all of this alignment in place. So what we see on our end, at least, is the, the applicants who take the time to really answer, um, you know, like we have pre-screen questions and things like that, but to really answer those questions and put their application together in a way that shows, I know you as a company as best I can at this point in the process. And this is why I think I'm a fit and why I'm excited about it. And they're the applicants that we see move through our process. Mm. I know that, you know, Gromotely is, um, essentially a, a job platform, right? Uh, um, a, a job board. And there's a lot of job boards that have popped up over the last couple of years, especially since since COVID, right? It's like a, there's like an explosion of, of remote job boards. What sets Gromotely apart from the rest of the job boards out there? What do you do differently? Yeah, we're beyond a job board. So basically companies and candidates both create profiles on Gromotely. And then when a candidate is hired, they essentially become like a Gromoda, we call it. One of one of our Gromoda's named the, themselves that, and that's kind of stuck. But you become a Gromoda. So Gromotely is now your home of work and you're paid through Gromotely. Your benefits are through Gromotely. Everything, you access all of our professional development and training. So Gromotely is really designed to be like your new home of work. 
and perhaps you work for one company for a couple of years and then, you know, it's time to move on to something else, you can find your next opportunity on Grimotely as well. Mm. So do you do any of those like EOR, like the employer of record, where if somebody is hiring someone from, from Portugal, do you help with that tax part of it? We do all of that. So from a company perspective as well, this is, you know, now where you find all of your talent, you manage the applicants through the applicant tracking system, and then you make a hire and a couple of clicks and all the payroll and contracts and everything run through Gromotely into the future. So we're not an employer of record. We use the independent contractor model because that's the model that I see as more supportive of an empowered work empowered individuals working where they can choose where they want to live and be responsible for their own finances and taxes. But we do have support in our benefits marketplace for them to access like tax advisors and things like that. So they can make sure they do it right. Um, but yeah, we're essentially taking all of that burden off the company. Got it. So anyone who gets hired through Gromotely is essentially an independent contractor. They're not becoming like in U.S. terms a W-2. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're more like in U.S. terms, again, like a 1099, but we just say contractor wherever you are in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. So I heard that you decided to start Gromotely because you felt like, like you started to feel like remote work was kind of redefining work for humanity. I heard you kind of like say that as, as as a quote. And for me, I had a similar realization because I had this, I used to be really into science fiction, not used to, I'm still very much into <laughs> science fiction. And I had this realization that if I believe that humanity is going to be a multiplanetary species, then I just don't really imagine us doing that from cubicles on Mars, right? Like that just kind of didn't quite fit in. And for me, it was like remote work, was something that had to be in place for that to be true, right? Like we would have to be able to work through massive distances and and a lot of difference in time in order to make that happen as like a full scale economy. What was it for you that made made you realize that remote work was sort of like the future and sort of like the first domino of a much bigger change in terms of how we as a society do work? Yeah, I think it's to do with... um you know, you're talking multiplanetary, even just coming back to earth, it's like, we're also just human beings on a planet, right? Like the ideas of country, the idea of countries is still a construct that was made up by human beings. And we put these borders and military and we protect, you know, the borders from people coming in and all this kind of thing. All of that stuff is really just made up. And as I see us working more globally and together globally, like a a team of 20 people in 20 different countries. Like it's such a rich experience every day to be sharing your professional journey with all these people from different walks of life. And it adds a lot of value to me as an individual. And I believe so for my team and and what I've seen in my um, journey so far to be talking to different people who live in very different situations, who experience different things daily. It also you know, you have a much more human experience when something bigger happens that you would usually just see on the news or social media. So, you know, when Ukraine was invaded, like, I'm not looking, I don't watch the news anyway, but I'm not looking at the news reports. I'm literally talking to, you know, my friend, someone I work with in Ukraine or in Russia, and I'm hearing like their very real lived experience. And it starts to shift my perspective as well on like, This isn't really like nations pitted against each other and things. It's just a few leaders at the top that make some decisions and do things and the the population ends up being impacted by that. So when I think about working globally, starting to see us, uh, us more as like human beings on planet Earth, all equal, all worthy of opportunity, all worthy of being seen and heard and loved and valued and all of that, remote work feels like, a really giant step in the right direction and a step toward like, quite frankly, well, peace, you know, and and it sounds like kind of extreme, but that's what I feel like I'm actually working on. And travel does that for us as well, as you would know, you know, when we travel to all these different parts of the world, we start to be humbled by our experiences. We start to see, oh, this belief system that I have because of the country or the city or the family that I was raised in is very different to this other belief system. And neither is right or wrong. They're just different constructs that are kind of also just stories that are made up 
um, and we can choose what feels most resonant for us. So I think travel was like the first step when we became, uh, when we got to a place where air travel became normal and, you know, my generation and the next, it's like very normal to travel all over the place and visit all these different countries and live in different parts of the world. I think that was a huge step in the right direction of understanding us more as just human beings on earth. And I think now removing the barrier, like creating a borderless world of work means that we're creating more connection with a diverse group of people um, and just feels really exciting. I wanted to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, Safety Wing. As a longtime digital nomad and remote worker, I can tell you from experience that travel medical insurance is extremely important. The more time you spend abroad, the more you increase your chances that eventually something will happen. Maybe you will get sick and need to see a doctor, or you're going to crash your scooter in Bali and have to get a cast. Either way, figuring out how to pay for that procedure in a foreign country is not what you're going to want to deal with at that moment. And that's why I love Safety Wing. Their services are designed for people like you and me. Their Nomad Insurance is a global travel medical insurance with emergency coverage across 185 countries. Their remote health package, on the other hand, provides remote companies and employees with global health insurance. Not to mention that Safety Wing is also funding the Plumia Project, which is working to establish the first ever country on the internet. So if you're still nomading unprotected, what are you doing? Head over to safetywing.com and find the insurance package that's right for you. And also, consider using the affiliate link in the show notes, which will directly support me in continuing to produce this podcast. So thanks again to Safety Wing for sponsoring us. And now back to the episode. I, I recently read this, uh, that Phil Libin, who's actually a, a, the co-founder of Evernote and a, a past guest of this show, and and they have launched a new uh, a new company, which I'm forgetting the name of, unfortunately. And what they're using is remote work as a tool to empower refugees yeah. from war or famine mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, because you know through the experience, and I and I'm, I don't think I'm mistaken here that you know him seeing how remote work was used when Ukraine was invaded to essentially continue giving money to the people there who maybe like you know were were working online and other job opportunities weren't available. They saw it as a way to do that even further outside of Ukraine in terms of, hey, there's these populations that have been displaced mm-hmm. that don't have the regular opportunities of work that they might be used to. Let's provide them remote work. And I think that that's so, you know, you mentioned being like sovereign as an individual. And I think that that is such a powerful step to know that, hey, you know, now I'm seeing like people fleeing from like Russia and whatever. I'm like, that's so great that you don't have to think about, well, I'm going to lose my job if you feel like you're in the position uh, to do that. So I, I think I think it's really incredible. I'm curious, what do you see in terms of, uh, you know, obviously we saw a big shift towards remote work during COVID. Now that COVID, you know, has kind of like subsided, or at least we feel like we have some control over it. We're seeing a lot of bosses trying to say like, all right, come back to the office. We're forcing you back into the office. We're seeing people saying, absolutely not. We're not going back to the office. What do you think is like the future over the next five, 10 years? Like, do you see that kind of like going back and forth until, you know, remote work sort of takes over or or like, how do you kind of view that? I think change is hard. So I understand why you know, there's a lot of companies and people saying you need to come back to the office because the pandemic was such a huge disruption. And for some people, um, there was a lot of fear and that fear drove a lot of just wanting to get back to normal. Um, I think there's obviously a large subsect of people that were not necessarily in fear and were using that time as a time to rethink the way that they were living and the way that our structures are and our societies are and the way that everything works from, you know, education to medicine to work and started thinking more forward, like what's next, what's what's exciting. And so that's where we're seeing that divide is there are people that are just wanting to go back to get that sense of normalcy and all of that back. Um, and then there are the people going, I'm not going back because actually I've discovered through this challenging thing, I've discovered some really exciting and interesting new ways to live. I, pre-pandemic, I couldn't see a world where we wouldn't eventually be working remotely. So, you know, now I'm only further committed onto that because we've all experienced it now. And for the most part, as we're seeing, like 
everywhere around the world, they're talking about the talent shortage. And there's not a talent shortage. It's just that people don't want to go back to offices. If you open up to a global talent pool, there's plenty of amazing people out there who would love to work for your company. They just want to do it on their own terms. And that's a big shift in terms of company culture as well. You know, we're, we're moving beyond the old structures that were more control and hierarchy centric to this kind of freedom and empowered um, synarchy. Like it's not uh, hierarchy or anarchy. There's a third option, which is synarchy, which is where we have really passionate, skilled and empowered people coming together who can make decisions and create things and bring their whole selves to their job that is very limited in a more hierarchical traditional structure where you get told what to do all day, every day. You know, there's a lot that companies are not accessing within their people when they have so much control and rigidity around how they're working. So I think ultimately it's a lot more expansive for humanity, for individuals, for us to be working in these new ways, but it is a big shift and it requires leaders to look at themselves and say, shit, like what was my ego getting out of being in power and being a boss and how can I let go of some of that and work alongside these amazing people and let them bring everything that they are and everything that they have to the table? If if my ego is attached to the power and the fact that I can tell something someone to do something and they do it, you know, there's a lot of deconstruction of that going on as well. So it's quite kind of broad what's happening. I I also think, you know, there's office leases and, you know, commercial leasing that was in place that I do wonder when we see that three, five, 10 year timeframe roll around where some of those leases start coming up, you know, will that change things as well? We already saw some really big companies just pay out of their leases. I think Pinterest, if I'm not mistaken, had just gone on a project and I haven't read anything about this lately. I remember this from two years ago, but I think right before the pandemic, they had this huge office project they were building and they pretty much just like paid all the money to just get out of it. They were like, there's no point. Let's just go remote. Um, like I said, don't quote me. I don't know if they've they've stuck with that. But, um, you know, there's on a small scale and a large scale, there's situations like that that I think we'll see more of over time because when you have experienced remote work and the company did still go really well, why would we want to have all of this extra cost on our on our P&L? Um, not to mention the energy and effort that goes into running a space. Even when I had like a small office with 15 people or whatever in Melbourne, Australia, you know, one person's whole job was pretty much making sure the cleaners were booked, making sure we had tea and coffee, making sure the place was tidy all these things that she had to do um, that you don't really need that role in your company anymore when there is no physical space to manage. And in bigger, bigger companies and bigger buildings, like that's a whole, you know, a whole thing, facilities management. So there's like all of this aspect that you can take out of your company that you no need, no longer need to pay for or worry about. So there's a saving in terms of money, but also just the energy and effort that goes into that. So I don't know, I think like any change, we sort of, Often we'll have like a leap forward and then we take a few steps back and then we keep going forward. But I also can't see many companies that have started since 2020 would be having a roadmap of getting an office. Like I think most newer companies are more likely, and that's what we see remotely as well, is like newer companies are much more likely to be just remote first, remote always, um, because it would almost be counter. They'd have to learn how to do the office thing and you know, narrow their talent pool and really go backwards. So um, I think as, as, as the future, as we move into the future, I still can't see a world where we're not pretty much all working remotely eventually. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think actually while COVID, this is kind of, this is going to sound kind of bad to say, but while COVID was very beneficial for the whole remote work movement, I also think it had a negative impact because what would have taken like, let's say 10 or 20 years to happen, happened in two, right? And so companies, because of that, didn't have time to like, okay, well, how do we do this sustainably? And what are the sort of things that we need to place? They kind of had to like duct tape something together because they kept thinking, this is temporary. We don't have to use a lot of resources to figure this out for the long term. It's just going to be temporary. And so 
they've experienced this weird version of remote work that didn't quite work very well for them. And so they're saying remote work doesn't work. We need to come back to the office. But it was just the fact that they weren't doing it correctly, right? Like, of course, yeah. it's not going to work right if you're like, I don't know if you've heard about this. Uh, I just discovered what this is today. A mouse jiggler. Have you heard of this before? Oh, yes, yes, yes. This it's is, using time tracking this software. Is, and Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for people for people who don't know what this is, I'm uh, I'm I'm flabbergasted because it's a thirty dollar device you can buy on Amazon that you put under your mouse, and it's constantly moving the optics of your mouse so that it looks like you're doing things on the computer, because so many companies are now tracking their employees' mouse movements to make sure they're working, which is just there are so many parts about that that bother me <laughs> that the fact that there's a product that is successful on Amazon for this means that there's so many people yeah. that are like, I need this. This is the the solution to my problems. And it's just like, a, it's just maddening. But and it's like, it's bringing, with, uh, that's bringing the, the old hierarchical micromanaging structures yes. into the remote workforce and doing time tracking and screenshotting of people's laptops and not trusting them, which in a lot of ways is like way over the top from what we ever did in offices. We didn't record people's screens and yes. stand behind them all day. But, you know, some of this tracking software really does that. So it's even more invasive. And it feels so much and it feels so much more invasive when you're remote, yeah. doesn't it? It's like I it's a it's a would, it feels way more personal in some way. I would never feel safe and trusted and empowered if I was working if I was doing anything where it was like we're gonna have we're gonna be screenshotting and recording your screen and you have yeah. to log in and log out and like that's very much bringing the kind of industrial age clock in clock out you can have your lunch break for five minutes at this time like that's very much bringing a lot of that into remote work and I think that's really sad and it's focusing on the wrong things because what we want to be focusing on is is output like what is the outcome what is yeah. the output like are we getting the job done are we meeting expectations do we know clearly what's expected of us like that's what's really important and that does also, you know, as leaders, it requires a little bit more effort up front to make sure people understand clearly what their role is, how to make decisions, what success looks like, and then to be giving them enough feedback along the way if we're feeling like they're not where they need to be and then navigating them out if they're not the right fit or what have you, which happens. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that stuff is, is crazy and and sad, but, you know. Did you um did you happen to see that new Microsoft study that came out about like remote work? Did that come across your virtual I desk? Think quote unquote? So. Not yet, no. So Microsoft just conducted this very, very quickly. The the top level kind of line of it is that Microsoft did this study of a whole bunch of like managers who are managing remote teams and the remote workers themselves. And they asked remote workers, do you feel more productive working remotely than you did when you were in the office? And 87% of the workers said yes, that they feel definitively more productive working remotely. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, they asked the managers, do you feel like your workers are more productive? And 85% of them said that they don't think their workers are being more productive. And what Microsoft actually found, which I thought was very interesting, was what they called productivity theater. It's this idea that now that so many employees are being empowered to self-manage, the managers themselves are, aren't quite sure how to do their job because they haven't been retrained. They don't really know how yeah. to manage in a remote work setting. And they're almost feeling like they're having to like posture to show that they're that they are that they're worth being in a job, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so they're creating this like dramatic remote work like productivity theater in which they're trying to prove to themselves and their superiors that their job is necessary because they don't know they they haven't spent the time companies haven't really invested in retraining these managers and i think it's so fascinating that 87 percent of workers say they're more efficient more productive mm -hmm. working remotely and 85 percent of managers say that they don't think that their employees are being uh they're being more productive i just think it's it's fascinating well and i think i think remote work lends itself to leading less, less to needing less management once when you do it right. So that feels very resonant with me. Um, I also think just on your previous point, like choosing to go remote as a company is really different to being thrust into it without and, and your motivations are different and you know what you're looking for. And so 
I chose to go remote back in 2014. And because it was a choice, I was very engaged in and invested in making it successful. And I was learning and growing. and I was excited about it. Um, when you're th thrust into it and it's not necessarily a preference and you have this potential future date where you get to go back to normal, it probably delayed a bit of the learning and growth. Like you said, it was more of a pro an, an approach of like band-aiding for now versus like truly learning how to step up and lead in a new way and run the company in a new way and, and all of that. So I do have compassion for the fact that people were thrust into this instead of choosing it the way that I did. But what we are definitely seeing now is professionals are choosing to invest in themselves and keep going in this direction. And I think it's really important for leaders of companies and entrepreneurs to be recognizing that and considering that because I do feel that the best talent is going to be demanding to be remote in the future. So if you're going to dig your heels in and be office based, then knowing that you are going to be getting the leftovers because great talent can say, no, I, I want to be remote. So my friend has, has this, uh, you know, works with this company as a recruiter and they have decided to pull everyone back into the office and they have a large development team. And essentially he is having the hardest time getting developers for this company because all the developers are like, no, I'm not, I'm not coming to the office. This is, this is ridiculous. And to go back to your point that you're talking about like Pinterest and companies kind of, you know, maybe being pulled into like leasing uh, agreements. What he said when he went to their client said like, Hey, listen, like, you know, I, I can't find you a developer because you're being forced to, to do a remote, uh, to, you know, bring them back into the office. What their client said was we're getting a tax break from the city to actually bring our employees back into the office. And so I think along with like leases, some of the cities aren't also like, cause there's also that version of it, uh, of the conversation as well. Like how do cities react to it? Like, how does that affect the urban core? And so cities are kind of panicking and saying, if there's no one coming in to work into these office buildings, what happens? And so they're very likely giving uh, tax breaks to these companies to actually pull people in. And so I yeah, think that's like, very, very interesting. It is interesting. There's competing factors at play like there are cities doing that and then obviously there are locations incenting people to come and live there now that they can live yes. there and still work remotely like we'll give you ten thousand dollars to come in this little town because it's stimulating the economy of this you know more regional location um but yeah cities do need to change you know they need to evolve into something different i think you know i think about things like what would the ideal inner urban apartment building look like in the future and it would have like a lot more communal space where there would be co-working spaces built into the apartment building and communal kitchen and dining and hangout areas. And how beautiful that would be that you might actually know your neighbors in this high rise, that the amount of high rises I've lived in literally haven't even known who lives next door to me because everybody is leaving that building between 6am and 8am in the morning to commute to wherever they have to go to. And then they're going to events after work and breakfast before work and coming home and like, that old model is was also tearing our communities apart um, and the remote work allows us to foster our local community and live more locally and live in places where we want to live, not because we have to, because we have to go to work because we have to get a paycheck. So a lot has to shift and I think there are ways to still, it's not like the death of the cities. I think cities just evolve into these beautiful, rich cultural hubs and cultural places where people want to be, but not because they have to be there on the train every morning or on the bus commuting to work or whatever it was. Yeah. I think the ripple effects of remote work are almost like the more interesting part mm -hmm. of remote work. Yeah. You know, like I recently read an article about how, um, you know, like libraries need to change because no one's like really, you know, going out there and like renting like physical books, like they don't really do DVDs anymore. And libraries have always been the point of like community meeting and how libraries need to evolve to essentially become the co-working space that's everywhere, you know, because it doesn't really make sense to build like like co-working space ever. So I think it's so interesting to see how it's going to ripple through a whole bunch of different uh, fields like this. I, I'm curious, I, I, you know, I can't let you go without asking about consciousness because one of the things that I saw a lot you know when I was doing research was about conscious business and 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 conscious employment and what does that mean for those that are maybe not so familiar with the word what does it mean to be a conscious company mm, I think there's a few aspects one is 
is the business as it's at its fundamental core doing things that are positive and good for people and the planet like and I think at this point we have to go beyond doing xyz in my business which I don't really care and then offsetting it with some kind of charitable donation or carbon offset or whatever like I think we need to transcend that altogether and come to a place where we know that everything we're doing is um, for the betterment of the people and the planet. So like that mouse jiggling company, it's not, it's perpetuating. There's a number of things that are not great about a company like that. It's perpetuating people being unhappy at work because the only reason you would buy a mouse jiggling thing is if you didn't really like your job and you didn't feel trusted and empowered. And so you needed this thing. And it's also quite frankly, a piece of junk probably that's going to end up in landfill and like how many of them are being produced. It's just like a really non-essential thing that we should be creating in the world. So I think there's that aspect of like, what does this business actually do in the world? And does it, you know, is it just good for people, good for the planet? We, we need to do this now and we can make money doing it. Like it's not mutually exclusive. So at this point, I just think there's not really We should be moving all business to a place where what we're doing to the best of our knowledge and ability is good for people and good for the planet and having those conversations with ourselves as leaders and in our integrity that, you know, the work that we're doing in the world is actually positive. Um, And then when I think about consciousness within myself and my team and the culture that I'm creating, it's around awareness, you know, bringing my whole self and bringing more self-awareness to the workplace. And I think that there is, I mean, I don't just think it, I see it. There's a lot of trauma that has been perpetuated in the workplace through our old hierarchical structures of disempowerment and control. People And the idea that you have to be professional, which essentially means you're not entitled to your emotions and how you're feeling because you just need to show up, wear your outfit, put your mask on and do your work, has perpetuated a lot of that trauma because there hasn't been a lot of space to say, oh, I feel really upset by the way that this person spoke to me and then we need to sit down together and clear the energy and understand each other more and come together the way that we would in maybe a lovership or when we're living with people, like we we have this kindness and respect to get to know each other and learn. And this stuff is not easy. You know, we're living in a world that has had a lot of historical challenge and still does. And that has filtered into our everyday lives and certainly into our workplaces. And I think in a lot of ways, the workplace is the last frontier of like healing and growth because we don't know how to do it. This idea of being professional has meant it's been excluded. Like we've been going to therapy in our personal lives. We've been going to couples therapy, you know, maybe within our friendship groups, we've at least developed the skills to be able to communicate to each other. But even within the workplace where we have some level of conflict management, a lot of it is like, how do we just get rid of the conflict so that we can keep doing our work? It's Mm. not really like- Or avoid it avoid it. Yeah. How do we just get it away so that we're not having to like, we can get back to work. And so let's just avoid it. But really what we're doing when we're working together is it's a relationship. It's a group of people coming together and all of those little triggers and past hurts and core wounds and traumas are going to come up from time to time with the way that we interact with each other. So can we build a workspace where that stuff can be talked about, can be cleared, can be aired so that people can grow and evolve and heal? And that has a ripple effect on their lives. It has a ripple effect into everything that they do. So it's about, and as leaders, it's about doing that work ourselves. So doing our own therapy, our own coaching, our own, whatever it is, like working with plant medicine or whatever is the methods for us, meditation, yoga, things that help us introspect, help us be more still, help us learn more of who we are and how we can communicate and operate with others in a more expansive way, how we move through conflict, which is inevitable. It is not about avoiding it and never having it. That's not part of the human experience. The human experience, though, becomes very rich when we lean into the conflict and the challenge, find the hurt within us, find those past pains, express that, listen to the other person 
and you know learn more about how we're coming across how they're coming across and bringing all of that into the workplace it's it's a big task it's not easy but i think it's what we're being called to do and i think that's what makes a more conscious um, and intentional expansive culture and and can create you know i i have property here out outside of Austin where I'm moving with community and we're learning a lot about permaculture and regenerative farming and, you know, regeneration is all about not just sustaining this piece of land and what we're doing with it, but regenerating this land, making it something that is thriving in this biodiverse ecosystem even more than it was before. And as I've learned more about that, I think about that within my company. Like how does my company become a place of regenerative change? How does everyone who comes in contact with Gromotely actually evolve? And sometimes that means walking through some pain and some hurt and facing some things, but how do we then evolve and become more expanded, more healed, more evolved beings, which has a ripple effect for the company, but also for the world at large? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you touched on like the trauma at work because um, Cassie Holmes, who's also um, a, a guest of, of of the podcast, she's also been on the podcast. She's a researcher um, at Wharton, I believe, if I remember correctly, and she does a lot of research around happiness uh, and how that ties into the way that we spend time and how we work. And one of the really interesting things that she found was that one of the really big contributors to us feeling happy is actually having some form of a work bestie, right? Having a best friend that work that we can see all the time and have conversations with. And that can be really, really hard to do if there's a whole bunch of trauma and issues that are being brought into the workplace and not solved, right? So not only are you not allowing your, your team to come together and to form culture, but you are legitimately affecting the way like the, like their happiness levels, even when they leave work, because that seems to be like a really key thing to have is some sort of deep relationship at the place that you spend a lot of time, you know, working in, uh, you know, your, your job. So I think that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, Sarah, I want to say thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. This has been uh, super fun for me. I learned so much and I'm sure the people listening have as well. Let folks know, um, I know that you're not on social media very much uh, anymore, but where can they find you online if you are active anywhere? And then what sort of companies make great Gromotely uh, um, clients? And then what sort of people uh, is Gromotely for and where can they find you? Yeah, well, hit me up on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. Just kind of got off some of the other social media platforms uh, last year. But uh, and then gromoli.com is where you can register as a company or a professional. So really kind of people who resonate with some of the things that we've been talking about, whether you're a company or um, a professional, but we, we love to welcome in skilled and experienced professionals who are looking for that kind of more mindful, more conscious experience of work who are investing in themselves to make this a reality for themselves and want to really show up and work in companies that are doing good things in the world. And we love on the flip side, working with companies who identify as being kind of mission driven, purpose driven, they care about their culture. They understand that the happiness of the people in the company is ultimately the leading indicator of the success that the company has. Um, so yeah, we would love to welcome all those people in, in companies. Perfect. Well, we didn't even get to touch on culture, which was something I want to talk to you about. So maybe we can do uh, a part two at some point and dive into all the things uh, culture. But Sarah, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. This was a ton of fun. Thanks, Mitko. It was great to be here. 